from ink-black darkness and bottomless emptiness came a light. And then another and another. This is the story of how it all started. All we see, all we don't see. But what or who was behind the nothingness turned something? Is there really a God to encounter? The light separated light from dark, water from sky. God saw that it was good, but it didn't end there. Human beings reflecting the very nature of God. So good, so very good. But more clever than any wild animal was the serpent. They took and ate and everything changed. But the unchanging one would bring them back, would bring us back, calling to each one and revealing himself on top of mountains, through flicker and flame, in tents and temples, and now our own hearts. New places to meet with his people, new ways to be close to him. Well, I want to add my happy Mother's Day to all the moms who are here as well on this weekend. We are in a series called Encounter. We're talking about how to encounter God's presence. We began our series with a couple of questions. The first message, we asked the important question, is there a God to encounter? And we answered that. Then last weekend, we asked the question that if there is a God to encounter, how do we get so disconnected to him? And we answered that. So if you missed any of those, you can go online and check those messages out. But this weekend, I want to ask a third question, and that is, where do we encounter God? Or better yet, where is it that God encounters us? To answer that, we've got to go all the way back to the Garden of Eden again, because that's really the first place where God encounters humankind, our first parents whom he created, Adam and Eve dwelled with God in the garden together in spiritual intimacy. And the word that you could probably use to describe that whole experience is the word worship, the word worship. And I have this little thought for you I want to put up on the screen. It simply states that you cannot truly come into the presence of God and not worship him. Now, there are a lot of times that we kind of go through the motions in our own personal life of connecting with God or we come to church like this to connect with God, which is important. The Bible says, don't forsake the assembling of, of a bunch of you together. But so oftentimes, we, I think we, we, we do it in name, but in honesty, there's no sense that we've actually really connected with God. Because when you do, something's going to happen. You will find yourself truly worshiping him. So some of the characteristics of that in the garden were things like Adam and Eve were totally conscious and sensitive to the presence of God. That would be one example. A second is they were obedient, totally obedient to the voice of God. And thirdly, they were entirely submissive to the will of God. So they were fully aware of God in their life. They listened and they obeyed him completely and they were entirely surrendered to his, to his presence. But then sin entered the garden and all of that changed. 
So for instance, when sin entered the garden, they became self-aware rather than God-aware. All they could do is think about themselves. Secondly, they didn't listen to God's voice anymore. They listened to their own voice. And thirdly, rather than submitting to God's will, they wanted their will to be done. And we know, we know that's a fact because all of us have experienced that in our own lives. Every one of us is very aware of ourselves. We constantly think about ourselves. We look at ourselves. We defend ourselves. We promote ourselves. And it's not until we lose ourselves that we'll really understand what it means to come into and experience the presence of God. In fact, as I was working through this, I came up with kind of my own definition of worship. And I just decided this is what I think worship is, at least for me. It has become so fully aware of God's presence that we lose ourselves because we're delighting in him alone. And that's where I want my life to go on a regular basis. And it's where I would love for our community of worship to go. To where we became so aware of God, we forgot about ourselves because we're so delighting in him. But in order for that to happen, some things are going to have to change in our lives. And that's what this series is about, to get us to that point. So what I want to do is I want to trace out how God comes to meet us so that in that place of meeting, we can experience this sense of worship. Now, I want you to draw with me today. And uh, uh, this week I was with, for, for a little while, I was with uh, an expert on communication. He's got his PhD, does not go to Wooddale Church, so there's no prejudice here. And he said to me, because he watches every once in a while, he says, you know that thing you do on the board? And I thought, oh boy, I'm in trouble. That thing I do on the board. He said, he said that, by experts' opinion, is one of the best ways for people to learn. Because he says there's something that happens when somebody actually starts to do something with you as you're, as you're teaching. It's like they remember it more, and they get their own insights from doing it. So I thought, ha, I've got an expert now to back me up. So if you want to really remember this, join me, all right? So we're going we're gonna to work through this together. And we're going to start with, after the garden, we're going to start with God coming to Abraham. So on your uh, piece of paper, whatever you're going to use, just <clears throat> write the name of God. And uh, God comes and he, and he speaks to Abraham. So I'm kind of trying some better drawing technique these days uh, so I can further impress you. All right? I think that's a little bit better. All right? Uh, Abraham was very buff, so he had big shoulders. Okay? All right? And happy guy. Okay? So God comes to Abraham and God says to Abraham, I want you to leave your idols behind and follow me. Because Abraham was an idolater. He worshipped pagan idols. He lived in the land of Ur. And God said, I want you to repent, which means to change, to turn around and leave it all behind. I want you to follow me, you and your wife, in your older age. And I'm going to take you to a land. And in that land, I am going to bless you. You're going to have descendants like the, like the stars of the sky. And the amazing thing is that Abraham actually believed God, even though he, and especially his wife, was beyond the years of childbearing. They just left everything behind, and they went in pursuit of God. Now, I want you to follow along the scriptures as well. In Genesis chapter 12, we have kind of the beginning of his story. And I want to read to you what God said to him in verse 2. God said, I will make you into a great nation, and I'll bless you. I'll make, you, make your name great, and you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You want to come down to verse 6 of Genesis 12. 
says, Abram traveled to the land as far as the site, the great tree of Moreh at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent. With Bethel on the west and Ai on the east, there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So I want you to notice that Abram builds this, this altar, which is going to become very important in the Old Testament. In fact, his son and grandson Isaac and, and Jacob will build altars as well. And the altar becomes kind of a, a place that marks the, the meeting with God. It becomes later on a place where sin is confessed. It becomes a place to, to say, God, I'm depending on you. And God, I am, I am trusting in you. And Abraham is going to learn to do that. So, for instance, when we get to Genesis chapter 14, we discover that Abraham is a warrior. His uh, nephew Lot, who's living in Sodom, has been captured by some other invading armies. And they take Lot and a bunch of the other people and many possessions with them, and they're on the run. And Abraham finds out, and he calls together his commandos, and he goes in pursuit of these kings who have uh, taken his his nephew with him, and he overtakes them and ambushes them and rescues Lot and the other people and their possessions, and he brings them back. And when he brings them back, he's met by this strange character named Melchizedek, who's the king of Salem. And in Genesis chapter 14, we find out that Melchizedek is also a priest, a high priest to the God, to, to our living God, to Yahweh. Listen to what it says in Genesis chapter 14, verse 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Verse 21, The king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, with raised hand, I have sworn an oath to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich, because it is God who has blessed me. It is God who gave me the victory. It is God who provides for me. Now, I want you to kind of keep track of that idea of what's happening here and what Abram's recognizing about God. Because when you get to Genesis chapter 15, the next chapter, God makes a covenant with Abraham about this promise that, that he will have a son through his barren wife, Sarah. And uh, Abraham is going to learn, it's going to be painful because he doesn't, always, he doesn't trust God at first, but he's going to learn that when God makes a promise, God delivers on his promise. And eventually, he has a son named Isaac with Sarah. And then God asks him to do the strangest thing. In Genesis chapter 22, God says to Abram, I want you to take your son and I want you to offer him as a sacrifice to me on Mount Moriah. So Abram takes Isaac with him. He goes up to Mount Moriah, which one day will be the bedrock for the city of Jerusalem. And there he builds an altar. 
There he builds an altar and he puts his son on the altar. He raises his dagger in the air. He's going to literally plunge it into his son's chest. He tells us in the book of Hebrews that Abraham believed that even if Isaac died, because God made the promise, God would raise him back from the dead again. And all of a sudden, God calls out to him through his angel in verse 11 of Genesis 22. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. So above your drawing, I just want you to write the word provide. And one of the things that we learn is that when God comes to us, he comes to us to provide. He comes to us to provide something we cannot bring to the table, to do something for us that we cannot do for ourselves and we certainly cannot do for God. Then we head toward another picture and another person because right after Abraham, the next major character in the book of Exodus is who? And they whispered, Moses, all right? <clears throat> Moses, let's say it together. Moses, all right? Moses shows up, and God speaks now to Moses. And God speaks to Moses, first of all, by the way, my wife is drawing too, and I saw her drawing right after this last service, and it just puts me to shame. She's really good at drawing a burning bush. Oh, well, I did my best. Next time I'll bring her up here, she could draw, all right? And, uh, and, and then there's this, there's this mountain. She'd do a great mountain. I'm messing mine up totally, all right? And God... God comes to settle on this mountain. God comes to settle on this mountain. And there's lightning and, and thunder. And there's this amazing sense of, pres of God's presence. And in this story, God speaks, first of all, all right, to his servant Moses. Okay? He wasn't always happy, by the way, if you know the story of Moses. But we'll make him happy here, all right? God, God spoke to him in a profound way. And then God speaks to the people from Mount Sinai. So let's go to Exodus chapter 3 in your Bibles, all right, and pick up the story there. And I want you to notice a couple of things that are very important. Exodus chapter 3, beginning at verse 4. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Now, does that remind you of something we just talked about? Remember, Abraham, Abraham, here I am. Moses, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Now, I want you to skip ahead to Exodus chapter 19. And let's look at the scene. And let's look for something familiar or similar to what we just read, beginning in verse 16 of Exodus chapter 19. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. 
Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of the mountain of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up, and the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord, and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us, put limits around the mountain, and set it apart as holy. So the word that's common to both stories of the bush and the mountain, what I want you to put up here is this word holy. The word holy. So when God comes, he comes to provide. But when God comes, he comes as a holy God. There are certain boundaries. You can only get so close to God. God tells Moses, I want to get close to my people. And God hands off to him the blueprint for the pattern of what will be known as the tabernacle, which is described in Exodus chapter 25 through about verse 31, and then, uh, I'm sorry, from Exodus chapter 25 to about chapter 31, and then from chapter 35 to about chapter 40. Lot of detail. We'll find out why in the next couple of weeks. And so you have this, you have this unique setting, this tabernacle, and in the tabernacle, a tent of the meeting, and God's presence, in essence, goes from the mountain and the bush, and God's presence settles here, and we read about it in Exodus chapter 40 and verse 38. So take your Bibles and turn a little bit further into Exodus chapter 40 and verse uh, 34, actually. Chapter 40, verse 34. It says, then the, Lord, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Verse 38. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during all of their travels. And for the next 400 plus years, this is how God dwells with his people. This is how they experience his presence. But only the high priest and only once, only once a year could go all the way into the Holy of Holies where God was most present among his people. Now eventually, the tabernacle gets replaced. gets replaced by the temple. So if you want to kind of create a temple drawing here, however you want to fashion it, all right? The temple is, is created here, and God's presence goes from the tabernacle, so to speak, into the temple. So now you have God's holiness in the holy of holies of the temple. Solomon builds it. It takes seven years. It's completed in about 959 B.C. But in 586 B.C., God destroys it. He destroys it by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And he destroys it because the people will, will not obey God. They are disobedient. They keep worshiping idols. They want to worship idols that let them do what they want. And they want to worship Yahweh. 
And God says, you shall have no other gods before me. I told you that way back here on the mountain. Why do you insist on, all, on disobeying me continuously? So God said, I'm wiping it out. And he did. And the people, many of them were taken exile into Babylon. They were exiled for 70 years. And then they came back again. And they rebuilt the temple. And when they rebuilt, when they rebuilt the temple, this temple was rebuilt under a guy named Zerubbabel. And it was completed around 519. Now, it's an important passage of Scripture that describes to us the moving of God's presence from the tabernacle into the temple. And I don't want you to miss it. So turn over, if you want, to 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles chapter 5 and verse 13. Here's what it says. It says, The trumpeters and musicians joined in unison to give praise and thanks to the Lord. Accompanied by trumpets, cymbals, and other instruments, the singers raised their voices and praised the Lord and sang, He is good. His love endures forever. Then the the temple of the Lord was filled with the cloud, and the priest could not perform the service because of the cloud. The glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. All right, so just working through this one more time, God's presence comes to dwell. The tabernacle moves into the temple. They disobey. The temple is destroyed. The temple is then rebuilt again under Zerubbabel, Presence of God, once again, with his people. Hopefully they've learned their lesson. But the reality is, they don't. They don't. And eventually that temple in 70 AD is going to be ransacked and ruined. <coughs> Excuse me. To catch up on our history for just a little bit, in 20 BC, Herod the Great saw what was rebuilt under Zerubbabel and decided to expand the building project. And he went into quite a lot of time to do that. 46 years the building was being rebuilt, was being expanded, the entire temple precinct, one of the wonders of the world. So even by the time Jesus comes to the earth, the temple is still under construction. But Jesus is about to do something. We hear about it in Matthew 21 and other passages of the scripture. When Jesus comes to the earth, one of the things that he makes known is that the people have turned the temple into a place of business and merchandise. It's like a market. It's not, they're not worshiping God. And so he says, this temple is about to be destroyed. And he makes this profound statement. He says, God's dwelling place is now somewhere else. God's meeting place with humanity has transferred. We get a picture of it over in the Gospel of John, if you want to turn there with me. John chapter 1 and verse 14. John 1, 14. I'm wanting you to see the big story of the Bible, all right? John chapter 1 and verse 14. We're told this about Jesus. In a simple verse, John says, the word, the expression of God, Jesus himself, became flesh, and it says, and made his dwelling among us. And the word that's used there literally is the word tabernacle. So think about this. God met originally in the garden. Man blew it. God pursues mankind. And Abraham, he meets him in the altar. God speaks to Moses through the bush, to the people through the mountain, transfers his presence to the tabernacle, then to the temple. Now God's presence has come, you can write this, in person. God has literally come to dwell with them 
in the flesh. Emmanuel, God with us, the promise. I want to be with you. Now, does that just communicate something powerful to you about the love of God? That he goes through this whole process to teach us something about himself, that he's a provider, that he's holy, that he loves us so much that even though we are rebellious, he still comes to us, and he comes to us now in person, in his son. And so it says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. Remember the smoke? Remember the fire in the tabernacle, then in the temple? Now the smoke, the glory, so to speak, is in his son. Remember Philip said, show us the Father will believe it. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father himself. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And just as Abraham was told to offer his son on an altar on top of what would become known as Jerusalem, Mount Moriah, and God says, stop, Abraham. Don't give me your son. He's not an appropriate sacrifice. God, hundreds and thousands of years later, God sends his son. And he puts him on an altar. And there's no stopping God. As Jesus dies for you and me, for the sins of this world. It makes possible a huge miracle. Now, you can draw yourself if you want, all right, because you're in the picture too, if you didn't realize that. Make yourself Old Testament, all right, if you want. Make yourself skinny, make yourself short. I don't care, but that's you because something's about to happen. Let's read about it. John chapter 14, same book. John chapter 14 and verse 16. It says, and I will ask the Father... And he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth. That's the Holy Spirit. Not junior God. But very God himself. Father, Son, and Spirit. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. So in essence, what Jesus is saying is that through his sacrifice, it's possible now for the presence of God, the dwelling place of God, to be you and to be me. Look at the journey we've taken from the garden to the altar from the bush to the mountain to the tabernacle to the temple to the very being of God, Jesus, his son, now transferred into your life and my life. That's what God does for us. And on the cross, he dismisses our past. He absorbs, Jesus takes our sin, our guilt, our shame on himself. And he wipes it away to make it possible for God to make his dwelling place in you and in me. And that's why the Bible says and warns us, don't grieve, don't quench the sense of the Spirit of God in your life. Now, let me be frank and honest with you that, at least in my life these days, I've been taking a long look saying, God, where is the evidence of your presence? Where is the evidence of your presence in my life? And I've been thinking about Whitdale Church and other churches as well, but I've been thinking, where's the presence of God when we come together? 
You know, the Bible says, don't forsake the assembling yourselves together. It's important that we come together. You cannot do life on your own with God. God wants his people to come together because when we come together, it's like Israel coming together, God manifests himself in a powerful way you can't experience individually. Because he works in us in all unique and different ways. And so it should be this beautiful picture we come together of God's presence. But honestly, how often do we come to church and it's just part of our weekend schedule if we make it, average Christian shows up 1.2 times a month. How can it be the presence of God? How can we know that presence? And I wonder sometimes, maybe we just don't come because we don't expect the presence of God. And yet the Bible tells me God wants to dwell with us. He wants to be in us. He wants to be with us in, in a tangible, real way. I don't know about you, but that to me is exciting. It's something I'm hungering for in my own heart and life and for our church. Let me give you a picture of what this looks like for just a moment. Turn over, if you will, to 1 Corinthians Chapter 6, we know in Acts chapter 2, and I'll have time to go into it, we know that the Holy Spirit came. Now we have the evidence of the Holy Spirit present in his people. And Paul is talking to a group of believers in a church in Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he kind of shakes them up a little bit. And he says something profound to them. Look at verse 19, 1 Corinthians 6. He says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? Question mark, question mark. Don't you know this? Don't you know that God provided his holy presence in his son, in you? That God's not just in his son. God is in person now in you. He's actually come into you. So Paul's point to this passage of Scripture where he's kind of disciplining the children of God the church, the believers, is if Christ is in you, how can you be behaving the way you are? How can you be sinning? And they struggled. They had all kinds of issues in the church at Corinth, so it's nothing new. In essence, he's saying, get a grip. Understand God dwells in you. Don't grieve. Don't quench his spirit. But give room. Give your whole life to his presence. So he manifests himself to you, and so he'll manifest himself to the world around you. You are a light, Jesus said, set on a city for all to see and find their ways. You don't cover the candle with a bushel. You let it shine. You let it shine. He says, don't you know you were bought with a price that Christ is in you? That's a great question for you and me to ask ourselves. Am I aware that Christ lives in me? In fact, Paul gets so detailed in verse 20. He says, you were bought at a price, therefore honor God, he says, with your bodies. He says, your body, this flesh of mine. He said, this is God's tabernacle. This is where God lives, where God dwells. I think we could just stop and take 10 minutes and meditate on that, couldn't we? What, is the, what are the implications of that for you and for me? I mean, do I honestly believe in the Bible? Do I honestly believe in God? If I do, then this is true. What difference is it making? And to kind of help us with that, I've got my, my glass of water up here and Alka-Seltzer, because you never know when you might not feel very well, right? And uh, I want to impress you with an effervescent power of, <clears throat> of Alka-Seltzer as a picture of the Holy Spirit living in our lives. So, so watch this. You ready? Do we have the camera focused? Okay, here we go. Ready? One, two, three. 
Ta-da! Wow, isn't that amazing? Look at the effervescence of the alkalsalter. You're like, okay, I don't know where you're going with that, but certainly you must be smart enough to know you have to unpackage it. Well, I am smart enough to know that, but this is a picture of so many Christians' lives and of, I think, the church in America today. We claim to have the Spirit, but the Spirit is so bottled up, so packaged and compartmentalized away in some corner in our life, being grieved and quenched by our flesh, by our own desires, by wanting our own way. That there's really no sense, no evidence other than the fact that we say that we're Christians and the Spirit lives in us. Well, we all know what has to happen, right? You gotta take the Alka-Seltzer and you gotta unpackage it. So let's set, let's set the, the pills free here. And the old commercial when I was a kid anyway was plop, plop, fizz, fizz, oh, what a relief it is, all right? So let's watch what happens when we stick it in. You guys ready? Here we go. Wow, that's a whole lot, that's, that's a lot of action compared to when the package was in there and the Alka-Seltzer was contained. Paul says, and be not drunk with wine, where's an excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And, it's, and the, the filling of the Spirit is an active fervency. It means like to boil. When something boils, those bubbles start going. That's how the Spirit wants to live in our life. I cannot imagine that the creative God who made the universe wants to come in our life and just be ho-hum tucked away someplace and not be active. He wants to be active in our life. He wants to be effervescent in our life. And that's why you don't want to miss the rest of the series because beginning next weekend, we are actually going to start unpacking the tabernacle. That's why you need to go through the tabernacle experience and sign up for a time slot. Because every piece of the tabernacle is a picture of Jesus. That's why God gave the plans for it, didn't let them create the plans. As we unpackage each piece, you're going, to, you're going to encounter Christ in your life. And as you surrender to each piece, the effervescence presence of the Spirit. Let's pray. Father God, I just pray and ask that we would allow you to meet with us on your terms. I pray, oh God, that we would go from the apathy which so oftentimes inhabits our lives to the effervescence presence of your Spirit in our lives. And as we begin to unpackage the tabernacle and understand this ancient wonder that you gave plans to be designed and built, Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus that you will do something fresh and new in our lives. Fresh and new in our lives, oh God. For Father, we are your traveling tabernacle. When we go to work, we go to school, we go to the gym. We go to the restaurant, we go to the park. When we're in the plane, when we're in the car, we're a traveling tabernacle. We are your presence in this world. Come alive in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.